Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. I am your host, Brett Coleman, with my wonderful co-host and uh, one of my best friends on this planet, EJ Snyder. Uh, We have a monster episode for you today. Absolutely jam-packed. Probably going to be one of our longest episodes in a while, to be honest, because we got a lot to go over, uh, including a few monumental trades that are probably going to you know, shift the league in in several big ways over the next few years. We've got a a huge interview with one of the the best O-line gurus out there in Brandon Thorne. And then we have a pretty sizable discussion on some of the disruptors, uh, quote unquote, at at various positions along the defensive line, defensive end, defensive tackle, the all-encompassing edge term, whatever you want to call it. Uh, You know, who are some of our favorite disruptors? of the 2021 draft class. So uh, without further ado, EJ, buddy, how you doing? What are you drinking tonight? I'm psyched. I'm so stacked that we get to kick off our draft focus interviews. We've been lining these up for a while. We've got a bunch of them. Brandon is kicking it off for us and he's just awesome. We had a good time recording that interview. So we get to, we get to let everybody see that, which is really cool. We get to talk about the defensive side of the ball. We did it a little bit in the 10 gems on defense, but we get to dig in a little bit deeper. We've had some folks ask on social media for a, a bit of a deeper dive. And I was, <laughs> again, that lucky timing. I was able to say, oh, we might just have something for you cooking. Uh, and to celebrate, I have a beer from a brewery that I know because I've actually met the guys that do it. This is Wet Coast Brewing, and this is their cream ale. Uh, this is a Ooh. brewing company. That was started by a couple of firefighters, active duty firefighters. And if you know anything about active duty firefighters, they have a lot of time off. They work like three or four days straight, 24 hour shifts, and then they get like eight or nine days off. And these two guys really like beer. So they got a an industri- little small industrial space over in Gig Harbor and started brewing beer a few years ago. And all their stuff's amazing. Um, happens to be right next to a bike shop that a buddy of mine manages. So uh, been to the brewery, hung out with these guys. Uh, Highly recommend if you ever make it up to the Northwest and you can find some wet coast offerings. Um, but going to enjoy that. And yeah, just a jam packed show. Tons and tons to talk about. If we come in under, under two hours, I will be flat stunned. Well, uh, you enjoying a micro brew started by uh, first responders. That's next to a bike shop might be the most Pacific Northwest thing that's ever come out of your mouth. And that's saying a lot, just saying <laughs> That's a high bar <laughs> or a low bar. I don't know. Depends on who you talk to. Uh, I just have coffee tonight because uh, I have 
Lots Somebody's of things got to work record. to do. Somebody has work to do. And uh, fun fact, it's a lot harder to edit videos when you're completely smashed. So uh, I am drinking who coffee. Yeah, who knew? Uh, not that you can really tell the difference, but uh, I'm drinking coffee. But before we uh, you know, get into to the great interview we had with Brandon, why don't we talk about these trades that went down a few days ago and all it was kind of a, a two-pronged trade between the 49ers dolphins and eagles so i'll kind of read off just where everybody ended up the picks that miami ended up with were number six and number 156 this year from the eagles they still have a 2022 first rounder and third rounder from the 49ers and a 2023 first rounder on top of that so they came out uh, very, very well at the at the back end of this. The 49ers move up to number three after giving up those two extra first rounders and that extra third rounder. And the Eagles move from number six ultimately to number 12, which was originally from the 49ers, then went to the Dolphins, now to the Eagles. Uh, they also get number 123 from the Dolphins and a 2022 first rounder that used to belong to the 49ers that now belongs to the Eagles. So, um, I guess you could say the 49ers paid both the Eagles and the Dolphins to move up to number three. So they must have somebody in mind that they really, really like. There's been rampant speculation that it's Mac Jones. There's been kind of tinfoil hat conspiracy theories about that being a smokescreen being precipitated by uh, Chris Sims, who's smokescreened for them in the past because he's best buddies with Kyle Shanahan and that they really want Justin Fields because they sent Adam Peters, their assistant GM and kind of their top scout uh, over to Ohio State today. Well, Kyle and John Lynch were at Alabama to see Mac Jones. So there's been some speculation that they're they're faking that they want Mac Jones to keep somebody else from trading up to number two and that they are kind of locked in on Justin Fields. I don't know what to think anymore. All I know is this, it doesn't matter whether it's Mac Jones, whether it's Justin Fields, whether it's Trey Lance, who's apparently dating Colin Coward's daughter, maybe, possibly, possibly why Colin thinks he's QB too. We'll see. Uh, Whether it's any of those guys, I don't think it matters because Kyle Shanahan's offense is built for success pretty much no matter who's there. Like they won games with Nick Mullins. They're going to be fine. So would I have taken Justin Fields out of all those guys? Yes. Are they still going to be good no matter what? Yeah. So in the end, 49ers fans, don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. It, it literally doesn't matter who they take. It matters, but it doesn't matter as much as people are making it out to. And uh, I know people say, how can you say that? And I can say that with absolute certainty because... of the guys picked in the top round are not going to work out as quarterbacks. Mm -hmm. And you are going to be lucky if any of them are still playing for their original franchise in five years. Yeah. Like that's, that's the facts folks. That's, that's not one class that bombed out. That's over the past, you know, three, four years. We have like literally one or two guys that are still in the same spot, doing the same thing for the same team. I the think odds it's every are first round quarterback up to 2017. I think 2017 is like the furthest back it goes where a first round quarterback is still in the roster. And those guys just are finishing their rookie deals now. That's how yeah. much of a crapshoot it is. So the odds are 
the whole thing's a mess. And uh, Shanahan and Lynch got together and said, we want to be comfortable and we are comfortable with anybody at three. There's no way you pay that much draft capital money, whatever you want to call it. If you are not settled that you're going to get a guy you want and let's face it, it's probably a quarterback. You don't do that for a non quarterback. And there's also been a ton of speculation around the incumbent starter, Jimmy G, right? And they're like, Jimmy's our starter. And everybody throws up all the quotes that, you know, we're not trading, we're not signing OBJ to trade him. And, you know, blank is our guy. And then he's out the door. That happens all the time this time of year. And I don't blame people for doubting that, but it's incredibly possible especially if they are really going deep and they want Trey Lance for some reason that you would play Jimmy G for a year and get Trey Lance ready. Trey Lance is a guy that Mm -hmm. is not going to be super ready out of the gate. He had one full season. He had one game this year. He's got the least number of pass sets, throws, starts of any of the top four. He's got tremendous physical skills and showed a lot of promise in his freshman year. Don't get me wrong, but college is different than the NFL. And if your roster is loaded up to make a run, the 49ers are in that place. They are in no way rebuilding. You might not want to trot out uh, a rookie with very limited starts to try and lead you to the promised land. You'd much rather lean on a guy like Jimmy G. And hey, if he gets hurt, sure, you could bring in a guy like Trey Lance. I'm not saying Lance is their guy. I'm saying that's very possibly a strategy that's hooked together. Um You know, who I'd take is sort of irrelevant. And if you want the biggest tinfoil hat conspiracy, um, it's that they knew that the Jets are not taking a quarterback. Well, that's also (laughs) kind of part of of Ted's theory. Uh That 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 Jets coaching staff, which is seems like half 49ers, 49ers. Yeah, Yeah. 49ers. It's solid. It's McDaniel. All those guys that. They basically said, hey, we're good with Sam, but we still have a guy that we want it to. So go to three. Because remember how this all kind of came together on the day of Zach Wilson's pro day? Mm-hmm. Where the entire league was in one spot, basically, because BYU's yep. got a fucking million guys coming out this year. So everybody was at BYU's pro day. There's backdoor conversations, especially between all these guys that are really really good friends for sure we just talked about trey lance and all the russell wilson speculation came because ryan pace and john schneider were in fargo at trey lance's pro day and ryan pace said here's all my goodies and john schneider said great i'll think about it so absolutely that stuff happens i mean shanahan sala the lafleurs like they're all in each other's weddings you don't think that they talk about this kind of stuff like I, I could totally see the Jets saying, like, we want Jamar Chase. We don't feel comfortable moving down because we feel like Atlanta's going to take Jamar Chase. So we're just letting you know, go to Miami because Miami's going to stick with Tua. I could absolutely see that happening. And to be honest, I, I got a lot of flack from Falcons fans, by the way, saying there's no way Atlanta takes Jamar Chase. Like, Julio's 32 and Ridley's <laughs> going to be 28 when he's signing his second contract. And Russell Gage is going to be a free agent, I think next year yeah. they, they need receive like they need young star receivers it's they're clearly locked into matt ryan for at least the next two years like they they need people so yeah i could see the jets basically saying like we don't want to move down at all because the guy we want is probably not going to last two picks after us 
go to Miami. Miami's doing everything they can to just collect picks because Greer loves picks. Uh, like that, that's, that's a scenario that I think is, is not only possible, but extraordinarily likely. Yeah. And at that point, we're not talking about, you know, we're talking about a fit that we had talked about previously, which was the possibility of a Zach Wilson playing in a Shanahan offense. And mm-hmm. it could be Fields, could be Wilson. It's probably not Trevor. Like Urban seems pretty locked in on Trevor, and and doesn't. They've seem... all but said. They're yeah, they, they, there doesn't seem to be a lot of intrigue around the first pick. They're not listening to anybody. They're they're taking the guy, and that's fine. Uh, but if the Jets, you know, tinfoil hat theory comes true, you're looking at Wilson versus Fields. And I know everybody's been comparing Fields and Mac Jones over the last week for the San Francisco pick. But if you brought Wilson into the conversation, it's it's a different conversation, especially uh, in terms of the way that San Francisco wide zone works and what BYU ran with Wilson in a wide zone. Anyways, all kinds of interesting stuff. It it fits. We should talk about Miami as well because I put out a tweet after this happened. So, by the way, fun fact, I was on a walk when this happened. Like, <laughs> I took a break from my regular job, which is right here, and I went outside and I got some fresh air and I walked up and down the road and I came back and I was like, holy hell, wh- what? Like, you're checking all the accounts, you're looking for the verified marks, and it's just all over Twitter and you're like, Oh my God, this actually happened like in the last 15 minutes. Like I didn't sleep through this. Like the entire top third of the draft just changed hands. Like what in the world? And so when, when the dust settles, uh, I put out a tweet that said, you know, Chris Greer say his name. This is amazing work. Now, Chris Greer is, is notably anti-publicity. He does very few, any media things. He is not a guy that likes the light on him. Uh, but he's incredibly skilled. He came on the year before Flores. He picks Laramie Tunsil. Flores comes on and says, hey, this guy that you picked with your very first first round pick, right, or very, very first high pick, like, we need to jettison him mm-hmm. because it's going to get us a bunch of stuff. And he's, he's, you know, he's a good fit for our system, but – we're at a place by the time we're going to be paying him in a couple of years. We could get more out of him as picks, right? So they flip him and Laramie Tunsil ends up being, was it four first round picks in a third? They, they've turned it into four first round picks. In a yeah. Third, so Chris Gear took his, on. one of his initial high picks as an offensive line, a very talented guy, obviously that had a uh, unceremonious drop on draft day into four first round picks and a third that from a team building standpoint is, you know, bow down and we're not worthy stuff. That's that's Wayne's world. It's ridiculous. And Chris Greer's never going to toot his own horn about it. He's never going to say anything about it, but you better take notice when Miami is competing for the AFC East, you know, next year, depending on how this draft goes, or certainly the year after that, uh, you know, pushing real hard to bump Buffalo off the pedestal and Brandon Bean and his crew have done a great job as well. But Chris Greer is in no way handing them anything. And Miami's still got a ton of ammo. The only downside I see is 
I'm really interested who Miami picks at six. Again, if Miami stays at six, and I think they do because they paid to get back up there. They they spent a first-round pick from next year to move from 12 to six. So that tells me that they want a guy that they don't think really has a chance of being there at 12. Like that's what they invested that first round pick in is securing the services of a guy. They looked at the top. They knew they were trading with San Francisco. They knew pretty much what was going to go on there. And they said, 12 is not quite enough. So they got Philly to swap and they pay a first round pick next year for six spots in this draft. That just tells me they've got a guy at six that they're pretty sure isn't going to be there at 12. If you're looking at Miami's roster, it's probably a receiver. Um, it's probably the second receiver off the board. Maybe they hope it's the first. Uh, but that to me says like chase, if he doesn't go, but again, we talked about chase, the very good possibility that the chase is gone. The fact that chase is gone by six, I agree with that. So you're probably looking at somebody too is very familiar with in Waddle or Devonte Smith, if that's their choice. But I, I, I think it would be Waddle at that point. Um, I think I think Waddle is he'd be like Albert Wilson on steroids for them, and they love Albert Wilson. I I, yeah. I, would, I I would think in terms of pure fit, like as much as I think Devonta Smith is good for them, mm-hmm. you know, he's a separator, and we know that two is more of a see it throw it kind of guy right now. He wants somebody that generates separation. I think Waddle generates as much separation as Devonta in different ways, but he does. Yeah. But I think his ceiling is higher. His yak ability is better. Um, I, I think he can, he can be uh, a, a true X factor for Tua. My only other theory was no matter what, there's going to be wide receivers available at 12. There's only one tight end. That I thought about that. that. Might be there. But I, I, Pitts is different. We're talking about Kyle Pitts from Florida. And, you know, Pitts is different. He is a true blue chip player in this draft. I, I think he's either the second or the third best player in this draft, regardless of position. I, I think you can make a case for second, even with Penesul. Um, he's just better at doing his job than almost anybody else is at doing their job in this draft. He's a tremendous player. And and sometimes you just reach for those guys. You just go get them. Um, and I could see it, but they really like Gesicki and they use him a lot. I'm not saying Gesicki and Pitts are the same guy. They're not, but they really like Gesicki um, and they use him a ton. He's a he's a focal point of their offense. Uh, Tua is obviously comfortable with him. Um, Fitzpatrick was very comfortable with him. He had a good year last year and, and made a bunch of impact for them. Um, now Pitts is a, is a different category. You almost have to consider him a wide receiver with his production. He's that, we talked about this. He's that Travis Kelsey, Darren Waller type of TE that could challenge for the league lead in receiving, even though he's a tight end. And those guys are extremely rare. They're like unicorns. So I could see that it would be crazy 12 personnel in Miami. Cause you'd have Gesicki and Pitts and ugh, forget about it. And they can get their receivers later on down. As you said, there's receivers in this draft. It's very deep. They don't have to get one of the top ones. I think they really want an alpha. And I think that's why they move back up because again, your wide receiver production is typically going to outweigh tight end production. Kyle Pitts, maybe notwithstanding because he blurs the line. Uh, but 
I would say that's probably the move. And and Dolphins fans will wonder if that was worth a first rounder next year, those six spots, again, with the depth at wide receiver and what they could have gotten in terms of number of number of chances. Um, but again, at this point, I'm not doubting Chris Greer on pretty much anything he's doing because he is turning magic down there in Miami. Yeah, there, there's a few general managers out there that you just kind of just let them do their thing and you assume that they're going to be correct. And I, I think Greer has has proven to be in that category. Uh, I, I'd say he's, I can't name five GMs better than him in the league right now in terms of what he's been able to do cultivating assets and then hitting on assets, you know, making prudent free agent signings. Time will tell if he's going to regret the Tua versus Herbert decision. But at the same time, I also, if Tua doesn't work out, I also trust him to be able to find a guy eventually because he, he hits on more picks than he misses. And they've got the assets at this point. Somebody made that very valid point. It was, it might've been Rich Eisen, but I could be easily miscrediting that. There was so much swirl around this, these two trades when they happen. Um, But they said, look, it's a perfect position. You give to a whole bunch of weapons this year in the draft. You've got a pretty decent base of offensive line that you started. You add a couple pieces to that. Again, they have plenty of draft picks this year. You give him everything. And you see how he does. And if he doesn't do it, you've got picks next year. You've got ammo. You've got a couple of first round. You can move up, right? Yeah. And you can trade your way right back in and go back up and get a quarterback if you need to. There is no like, well, we spent our pick and now we got to sit on it for four years because we don't have any more capital. And we don't no. Like if Tua doesn't work out this year, fully surrounded by a cast, um, I don't think I would not put it past Chris Kerr at all to say. Nice. Thanks. Appreciate it. But we've got a division to win. We're, we're getting, you know, whoever next year. I mean, the 49ers just went to a Super Bowl two years ago and they're moving off the guy that got them there. So it's yeah. it's a what have you done for me lately business? I I know different team every that, year, different te- you're a top five pick. You're a national champion. You're a, you know, a Heisman contender. Were you in college? Doesn't fucking matter if if you're if you are the worst quarterback in your division, because obviously Josh Allen's great. Um, if Cam Newton has a resurgence or let's say the Patriots move up and grab a guy that ends up developing well. And um, <laughs> cough, know, cough, Mac the, Jones, cough, 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 Mac Jones, uh, uh, you know, the Jets, whatever happens with them. Like it's, it's a realistic possibility that a year from now, two is the worst quarterback in the division. Totally you can't possible. let that stand. You no. can't let that stand. So, um, now, speaking of, you mentioned the Dolphins' offensive line because they've been heavily tied to guys like Penny Sewell and Rishon Slater. Uh, why don't we get into this Brandon Thorne interview? If, if you don't know Brandon's work, he writes the Trench Warfare newsletter. He's an analyst uh, with Establish the Run. He used to work with the Scouting Academy. Uh, one of the best offensive line analysts there are. Also works with Duke Mannyweather. Uh, excuse me, Duke Mannyweather over at uh, O-Line Masterminds who, you know, trains Lane Johnson and uh, let's see, Makai Becton was one of their guys coming out. I mean, the, the list of all pros that they train every single year is, is flabbergasting and Brandon's a part of that uh, coaching staff as well. So he, he really knows what he's talking about with offensive line. And we had a really good chat. It was about 40, 45 minutes on, on some of the top prospects, uh, both at tackle and at guard and at center in this class. And I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So why don't we roll with that? 
And we are very excited to have uh, Brandon Thorne join us on the show this week to talk about a very, very loaded offensive line class this year. He is the author of the Trench Warfare newsletter, which I am a subscriber of, and I absolutely highly recommend it to everybody that cares anything about offensive line or defensive line play. Uh, he's, he's arguably the best O-line analyst doing it this uh, like to this day. It's phenomenal stuff. He runs Establish the Run as well. Like anything offensive line, Brandon Thorne's your guy, and we're excited to have him on here. He's been doing a lot of work on these draft prospects. Uh, and Brandon, just to kind of kick off this interview here, What's your thoughts overall on this offensive tackle class? Is it better than last year? And kind of historically speaking, where would you rank this tackle class overall? Yeah, I'm looking over here at my board in my office uh, just to kind of, you know, get a lay of the land a little bit. But, um, you know, last tackle class, I, I didn't watch it as extensively as I am for this class. So I didn't watch, you know, every – eligible guy like I am for for this year but I did watch a good portion of those top guys and I think you know generally I think this class is uh deeper um you know at tackle and you know I, I just think that there's a lot of options in like the day two range um more so than last year maybe not quite as uh top heavy but I don't know man I mean I, I kind of do lean that it is pretty close to being as top heavy as well so you know, it's just interesting with the obviously with COVID and everything. Um, you know, a lot of guys, some of these guys didn't play last year. So, you know, the top two guys in many people's book didn't. Uh, a lot of these guys don't have as much experience as you typically want to see from offensive linemen. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how people, you know, parse that and, and work through that um, and value that. But um, so, so that's kind of one of the downsides of a lot of these players, I think. But I mean, talent-wise and the film, um, when they were playing, I think is, is very good, man. I think there's a lot of starters in this class. So, Yeah, that variance in this class because of exactly what you talked about. Some guys playing, some guys not playing, no combine. The, the variance in pro day numbers that we're seeing really lends this class, I think, opinions to vary more on this class than in years past. That group think sort of sets in. Everybody sees them in the same place at the same time. They all have a few more snaps this year. I don't know. Are you finding that you feel like it's more all over the board? Cause I certainly do. Seems that way. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, being on Twitter and stuff, it it seems like people are kind of all over the place with different guys, or at least they were. And now I think as we get closer, we'll see more probably group think, Um, you know, but, yeah, I mean, I came into it fresh. You know, I had never watched any of these guys, uh, you know, before I started the, the tape, really. I mean, I watched Sewell a little bit, uh, you know, prior last year. But, I mean, you know, I was pretty fresh on a lot of these guys. So um, I always love coming in that way, uh, you know, on any player. Um, so, you know, a lot of my opinions, I think, are pretty similar to some. But then I, I also have, I think, some that are different. So it's you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll get into some of these guys, but um, I mean, there's so many guys to talk about. And I, I really feel like there's starters throughout the draft. Well, you know, you just mentioned Sewell and there's been uh, kind of a debate that was sparked a long time ago now with Daniel Jeremiah putting uh, Rashawn Slater as his OT1. I know he's one of Duke Mannyweather's guys. So Duke's but I think Duke genuinely believes he's OT1 as well because he's worked with him. He's seen him move and everything like that. And I think there's been more and more people that have 
you know, seeing his technical refinement combined with his athleticism, the fact that he's a, a five tool guy, he could play literally every position on the line. Um, and then you compare that to Sewell, who I think athletically is just absolutely freaky. Um, not, uh, not as technically refined as Slater, but it's, it's kind of a projection versus somebody that you feel good about day one. Where do you see the debate of Penny Sewell versus Rashawn Slater? And are both of them worth top 10 picks to you? So I see it as Sewell being a guy that he's just special. Um, Slater, I mean, he's special in a different way, kind of, kind of like how you're saying. I mean, just, you know, as, as high of a floor as a guy can probably have, I think Slater is, is right there. Um, in terms of a guy, like you said, who can just come in right away, play multiple positions if you need him to. Um, but ideally, I'm always a big fan of guy. Just, you know, you put him at a position you want him to be at long term and you feel good about. Um, and the more I think about Slater, the more I can see, like, just an incredible guard. Um, but, yeah, I totally get, you know, keeping him at tackle like Isaiah Wynn and guys like that, you know, who maybe, you know, a little smaller. They look more like a guard in terms of their frame and their build. But, you know, their tape is really good at tackle, so might as well try them there. But I don't know. I mean, you know, so the more I get into this process and, you know, kind of go back on some of his tape, I, I, I may even move him to the guard and just kind of have him projected there. I'm not sure, though. So, but, yeah, I mean, just I'll start with Slater. Like, his footwork, um, weight distribution, balance, his ability to recover from compromising positions – is excellent and all those things um i just think translate very well uh to the pro game and also he recognizes things very quickly uh he's very rarely caught off guard um but then when he is he's able to recover uh really good hands as well he's just efficient you know um and then for him to come and and you know just do what he did at his pro day uh that that speaks to me like he's really a pro you know, he, he's preparing the way he should. Um, and, and by all regards, all things that I've heard, he, he really is like a pro already. Um, so, yeah, I think he's just, you know, a guy who, you know, top 10 might be a little rich for me. Um, but, you know, I could certainly I wouldn't, you know, bat an eye if that happens and think it's, you know, a bad value necessarily. But I would I feel better in like mid first kind of range. Um mm-hmm. And, and Sewell for me, man, I mean, he is, uh, you know, I just think when you look at his age and his athletic ability with his size, and then on top of all that, I've said this on other shows and everything is his, uh, his mental processing is outstanding. Um, you know, I just think, you know, if you watch him in a 2018 early in the year, he was 17 years old, uh, and you watch the tape and the things that he was doing, um, just truly rare stuff. Uh, so I, I just think his, I'm not a huge like upside guy, but um, his upside truly is uh, outrageous, um, just limitless. But then I also think he's ready to go pretty much right away um, and play and, you know, might, might have some, some growing pains um, in terms of technique and stuff like that. But I, I even, I really liked his hand placement. Um, I thought I thought he was able to quickly latch into the armpit inside shoulder area of defenders mm-hmm. and pass protection, especially creates leverage very quickly. Um, you know, I, I saw him use different pass sets and hand techniques to keep rushers guessing. 
I think there's a little more nuance to his game at the same time than people are giving him credit for. Um, I just think, you know, the age, maybe some maturity stuff I've heard, uh, you know, may need to get ironed out with time. Um, but I mean, he's a great, you know, worker, football character, leader, all that kind of stuff. You know, people rave about him. I've, I've gotten to talk to coaches there extensively um, and watch tape with them and stuff like that about, you know, and, and go through stuff uh, in terms of what he's seeing and, and what he's prepared for and stuff like that. And he's just just so impressive. So to me, it's it's hard to put a guy like Slater, who we talked about over a guy like Sewell. I just think you know, when you're evaluating these guys of what they can be and plus what I think he'll be early, I just think Sewell, you know, is is kind of the no-brainer top guy in my opinion. Plus, if if your offense has a lot of screens built in, I don't know if I've ever seen a tackle move better in space on screen passes and just absolutely demolish DBs. It, like, not even just being able to locate and lock in on them, but finish DBs in space. Uh, it's Trent Williams that special. Yes, you know. exactly. And yeah. and Trent, you know, again, he was a similarly freaky athlete. I can't remember what age he came out, but I think he was like 21. He might have only been like a year older than yeah. Panay coming out. But it's I really it, hope Panay Sewell does his pro day. I've actually heard from a couple people now that he might not do it. That I've heard be, that too. That'd be so disappointing. Um, so yeah, I, I really hope he comes out and just crushes it. You know, I, I you know, being a, being out of football for a year, there's no I don't think there's any reason you shouldn't do your pro day, man. I mean, I feel like it's part of the process. And so we'll see, but I, I hope he does it. Now, OT, yeah. uh, OT2 in your rankings is, is a guy that I've done extensive work on. You actually have him above Slater strictly as a tackle. And that's Tevin Jenkins from Oklahoma State. You just did uh, recently a film room uh, with him where you broke down uh, 20, 25 plays with him and kind of went through his, his thought process on these plays, um, you know, techniques he was using. And the thing that jumps out to me is we know he's big. We know he's strong. You know, he's he, he's built and plays like a Brian Balaga type tackle where it's like, I'm going to give you my chest. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, go ahead, try to convert speed to power. I'm just going to anchor against you anyway. But how he uses his hands, how he reads rushers mid rep, um, how he's able to process fronts be before the snap and know what's coming to him, you know, being able to identify twists based on like, hey, that A gap's open. I know they're going to be slanting, which means they're bringing this linebacker in the C gap. That's my dude. Like, he's really, really smart, really, really technically developed. And then you just throw in on top of that that he plays like an asshole. Uh, you know, I feel like every offensive line coach in the league would absolutely love him. Yeah, man, I, I, I you know, you basically almost just kind of read my scouting report on him in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, you know, for like positives, you know, one of the things in a line in my report, I have commanding grip strength and he puts defenders in a cage once he's latched onto their frame. I mean, that ability to do that, you know, as consistently as he does, I think is pretty special. Um, and of course, you know, his finishing ability uh, is consistent and he, you know, he's taking guys out of the screen consistently. Um, and, you know, I think he has above average agility, foot quickness and burst, um, you know, not elite, maybe not very good, but I, I did see above average there. Uh, so I think maybe that's getting, you know, knocked on him a little too much. Um, you know, I guess the, the length thing might be an issue. I've heard 33 and change at Exos. I've heard 32 and change 
prior to 2020 from scouts. So, you know, if he's 33 plus, you know, tackle all day, if he's under 33, I can understand, okay, you know, put him at guard. I, I think with his hands and his ability to process, you know, I think he'll be fine at guard. I think those are two things that I always look at for tackles. If you want to convert them to guard, I feel like they need to have good hands um, and they have to be able to process things quickly just because the game, this, the speed of the game obviously increases the further inside you go. So I think he has that. So he can certainly play guard, I think, and be probably, you know, just as high of a rate of prospect to me. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, most likely stick him at tackle for sure. Right. Tackle he's played left. He's, he played guard a couple, I think he has two starts at guard in his career mm-hmm. uh, in right guard. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I think he could become a, a little bit predictable using that snatch trap technique. Um, you know, maybe learn mm-hmm. to pick his spots a little bit better, but that, that type of stuff comes with time. Um, you know, it's just great to see him, you know, using all these different types of techniques to unlock pass rushers when they get inside of his frame um, or he can just absorb it and anchor down, like you said. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, just, just the power, the competitive toughness, the use of hands, and then the above average foot quickness stuff to me, he kind of reminded me of Jedrick Wills, um, you know, maybe Ooh. not as athletic, but I certainly see the, the similar type of player um, stylistically and the power man is, is reminiscent. Yeah, is that was the thing that stood out to Jenkins and the first reason I pointed him out to Brett when I watched him. I watched him a little bit earlier than Brett did, and it was that hand strength and rotational power. It and it was the argument of the old, you know, Dante Scarnecchi argument. I don't care if you're long or I don't care if you're quick, you got to get there either way. And with Jenkins, once he gets that arm out again, he puts himself in good spots mentally. Once he gets that arm out, gets a hand on you, especially both hands on you, it's over, right? He's turning right. you, he's putting you on the ground, and you see that, like you said, I love what you said about consistently, right? His finish shows up consistently. It's not something he does once a game or every couple of games. That is th- something you see on his tape over and over again, and I got into it with another analyst who said, oh, he's a guard, and I was like, really? I mean, I can, same as you, I can see why you would say that. Maybe a little bit of the overrating on, you know, he's not super fluid, super quick, but he's quick enough to get himself in the right spots. And I'm like, with that kind of technique, that kind of processing, that kind of power, why would you not put him at the premier spot? And if that doesn't work, yeah, you can slide him inside. And I too think he'll be okay. That's not always a perfect switch, but start him in tackle. Like I see him as a tackle, right? And. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was just surprised that somebody's like, "Nope, guard." And I was like, mm, "Might want to go back and think about that. It's a different way to get it done, but he gets it done." Yeah, he, he does. I mean, if you have under thirty-three inch arms, legit, I can't think of a tackle in the NFL is succeeding with that. Now that not that there can't be anom- uh, anomalies. The last but- one might have been Anthony Munoz. You know, like thirty years ago. <laughs> different okay. game. Yeah, last so one I can think of. That's why I mentioned the guard thing. If, if sure. I didn't hear about that, I wouldn't have ever thought about guard. But, you know, so we'll see. But, you know, I, I man, based on tape, I, I definitely think right tackle is a good fit for him. Now, uh, continuing with the tackle class, I can't remember exactly uh, where you had Darisaw ranked in your tackles. Um, I yeah. know you, you, you saw some things you really liked about him and some things that I don't want to say a red flags, but things that could be cleaned up. Uh, first question, do you see him as a left or a right? Uh, and secondly, what kind of system and what kind of 
coaching staff, because I think that's also important for young prospects. They got to be with the right coach. Uh, what kind of staff and system do you think is best for Christian Derisaw to get the most out of his career? Yeah, so Derisaw and Slater and Jenkins are all somewhat close to me. Um, I mean, I so I have an 8.5 on Jenkins, 8.4 on Slater, 8.2 on Derisaw, according to the mm-hmm. scale that we use for Bleacher Report. Um, so all first round picks, um, you know, I just, that's how I would slot them. Um, and in terms of sheer talent and physical traits, I think Derisaw has a, has an argument to be, you know, tackle one or two for sure. Um, you know, I think his talent when you're watching him on tape is, is pretty undeniable. It's very easy to see. Um, just his frame is build the way he moves out of his stance, his quickness, uh, his natural power. And, you know, he's, he's pretty overwhelming at the point of attack. Um, so I, I think all that stuff's pretty obvious when you watch him. Um, you know, I think he works off threats pretty well too um, when he's, you know, uncovered and covered. Um, so, you know, I think he, he, he has that aspect of his game as well. Uh, he, he's very comfortable on an Island. Um, just reading off my notes here. And, you know, I think he has the patient patience and the confidence to, to not, not bite on a lot of uh, stutters and hesitations not that he had a ton of opportunity to be on an island at Virginia Tech, but I think in those reps when he was, he looked really good there. Um, and, you know, they run a heavy zone scheme and, uh, you know, he mm-hmm. excelled at it. Uh, so I, I think in terms of his pro projection for scheme wise, I think he's scheme versatile. I don't really think it matters uh, what scheme he goes to, but in terms of the offensive line room, the situation, the people he's around and the coaching he receives, I think all that's very important for him. Um you know, ideally, you just want him to go to an offensive line coach that has a history of developing players. Um, you know, obviously, Bill Callahan and Mike Munchak are the gold standard right now. So, you know, either one of those situations obviously would be great. Um, you know, obviously, in Cleveland, he couldn't play tackle right now. So that's probably not going to happen. Uh, Denver, I guess, is a possibility. Right. Um, and then there's other really good offensive line coaches out there as well. Uh, you know, John Matsko is really good in Washington. Um, mm. Aaron Cromer got let go by the Rams, but he's always been a great offensive line coach. I'm not sure what's going to happen with him. Um, so th- there's 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 a few others. There's like 10 or so, you know, like eight to 10 guys who, if you look at their track record, guys have consistently performed or excelled under their tutelage. You know what I mean? So situations like that where, where somebody's proven, I think will be really good. And the reason I say that is because, you know, on his tape, I think he plays down to competition. Um, and, you know, he'll, he'll show up when the, when the lights are on and, you know, he has a really good player across from him for sure. Uh, and he has the ability to do that. But it is kind of a red flag for me when, you know, if you watch him against Liberty, that mm. was concerning to me. Um, you know, I, I would expect a guy of his talent to go play Liberty and dominate. He did not dominate at all. He actually got, you know, stood up and guys got into his frame a lot. He just looked kind of careless, you know, just going through the motions uh, a lot. And, you know, that's just kind of concerning for offensive line in particular. Um, you know, maybe as a pro, it won't matter. And, you know, because every guy he's going to face is good, it won't matter. He will he'll never have the opportunity to play down the competition. Uh, okay. you know, that's certainly possible. But, you know, the competitive toughness factor on the field, consistently finishing, consistently maximizing what you can do, I didn't see that in every tape. Duke uh, as well is another tape where you can kind of see that. 
Um, you know, he relies on his upper body strength a little too much uh, just because he can. Th that's kind of a common thing, though, I see in prospects. You know, if they're bigger and stronger than you, they're, they're just going to do that. They're not going to always bring their feet and really, you know, generate power from the ground. A lot of the time they're just going to get, you know, just use their upper body to move you. And he does that a lot. Um, so, you know, maybe just clean up some stuff there technically, but, um, you know, and then the, the play down to competition thing that that's, the, those are the two things, two or three things why I have him below those other guys, but I can certainly see him being a very good pro for a long time. If, if those things go out the window, which they can. Uh, yeah. EJ, I don't know if you watched the Miami game, but did you watch him against Roche where I, I don't think Roche got literally anything the whole game on him he just got swallowed probably his best team yeah and a perfect example of what brand is talking about you know miami has three guys at edge that are going in this draft and derisaw knows that i mean these these guys are they're young but they're not clueless they they're fully aware that every scout is going to watch that tape for both sides of the ball and it is interesting because one of the things over the years as I've watched offensive line, and it's one of the more challenging positions for me. Um, and, and as I've grown and, and listened to guys like you and lots of other people, one of the things that I've come to appreciate is that consistency and it's consistency when the lights are on and when they're not right. Are you always doing the same thing and can you demonstrate it week in and week out? And uh, a long time ago, somebody told me the best offensive line prospects are boring. <laughs> right. They're boring in a good way. Right. You never see the bad things happen. I go back to Cody Whitehair's tape. Right. I watched three tapes of Cody Whitehair, probably what is that, like 145 snaps or something. And I saw one guy tilt him and everything else was the exact same. Two steps, drop, absorb contact. One more step. End of rep. <laughs> Like, and you watch that, it's like paint drying. But when I got to, you know, where white hair was going to go, I was like, I'm comfortable with them going just about anywhere. You know exactly what you're going to get. And it's when you see that variance, especially in a younger player, I like that you said it doesn't have to stay, right? It can go. Those are things that can get drilled out of him with a good coach. Um, but it is one of those things that sort of pictures of it's like, man, he had a great game here. He had a kind of down game here. Um, and again, right. when it's that sort of variance of competition against Liberty, you're like, huh, okay, did you just kind of just think you could just muscle them all day and maybe it didn't work <laughs> out for you. Right. Yeah. yeah so Liberty's got some dudes. <laughs> <laughs> One yeah. a quarterback who you love, but that's, we're not yeah, talking I do. about that. <laughs> um, I, I, there's a, a freaky athlete, speaking of freaky athlete, that, that's coming out in this class from Bama. Surprise, surprise, Bama recruits freaks. <laughs> Uh, Alex Leatherwood, who, when you look at his pro day numbers, especially the jumps, you know, 34 and a half on the vert, you know, he's got 34 plus inch arms running sub four, nine in the 40. Like that is almost identical to what Trent did in the combine in 2000. You know, Trent was a little bit faster in the 40, but everything else, uh, you know, height, weight, frame, jumps almost identical. And when you watch him on tape, I mean, his, his first step out of his stance is ridiculous. Yeah. But at the same time, as you've pointed out, everything after that first step can kind of go haywire on him. What are your concerns about Leatherwood and are they fixable enough that you're willing to gamble on the athlete in the first round and just see what happens? I'm not comfortable in the first round on him. Um, 
even with the testing and stuff like that. I mean, I, I'll give them a slight bump probably because of the testing, but not, not a whole lot. I, I mean, very, very small, just because I saw a lot of, you know, the testing on tape, you know, maybe not to quite that degree, but I saw, you know, really explosive twitched up dude on tape. Um, so, you know, as far as concerns, I, I think, you know, you touched on it, I, I, you know, after he gets out of his stance, he has a tendency to overset guys and that just opens up the inside, you know, for inside counters or he'll underset guys and throw that outside hand and be really heavy with it. And it's just basically bait for a cross chop technique. And mm-hmm. I feel like almost every loss he had um, in the, I've watched like seven games of him. Um, almost every single loss was either oversetting, getting beat inside or by a cross chop to his outside hand. And in the pros, um, the cross chop, you know, obviously is, I think the most commonly used pass rush move right now. I think if you watch NFL tape, you're going to see the cross chop five, six times in any tape you watch by, you know, assortment of different players, um, you know, obviously to varying degrees of success, but a lot of guys are very good with that move. Um, so for him to have that bad habit in his game, I think is is pretty concerning because um, I think it could get really exposed in the pro game. Uh, so he has a lot to clean up in that regard. Um, you know, obviously the physical stuff is really special. I think as a run blocker <clears throat> all around, he's, he's very good. Um, you know, creating movement at the point of attack, displacing defenders, comboing and climbing, pulling and leading around the edge. He can do all that stuff, um, you know, so, you know, play strength, initial explosiveness, heavy hands, you know, that that's certainly there. You know, I, I gave him a comp to a guy like Michael Orr. Um, I think that oh. you know, Michael Orr was such a stud run blocker and, you know, average to below average in pass protection. That's kind of what I see for Leatherwood. Um, there's potential to be more than, than Orr was for sure. Uh, because of you know his physical gifts, but that's kind of the playing style that I saw um, and and how it can translate to the pro game. And I gave him like you know I'm like round two on him. Interesting. I'm gonna dig just a little deeper on Leatherwood and ask you a question. We talked about a previous prospect. What do you think of him at guard for the two reasons that you talked about? He's a dominating run blocker and he's got that initial quick twitch. Nobody's arguing that that first move is lightning. And his ability in space to kind of have that work against him, right? Everybody talks about speed and mental processing. And when they don't go together, speed just gets you to the wrong place faster. And if he was a <laughs> guard in a phone booth, do you think that he could maximize those two things? The initial quickness and and the run blocking prowess, which is pretty obvious on tape. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible. The only concern I would have there is his hands. Uh, you know, I think interior-wise, uh, with the you know the, the skill that's inside there, um, not just from defensive tackles, but from guys moving inside as well. Your hands, I think, as a guard, have to be really precise, um, or else you know a quick loss on the inside is worse than a quick loss on the outside. Um, and you know, so that's my only concern with guard is his hands. But in terms of everything else you said you know, for sure matches up well with the transition inside. But I think the hands thing is probably the main reason why I didn't project him at guard. Uh, So, but I could totally understand that. Um, You know, I don't think it's crazy. So, but yeah, that that would be my one concern with the movement guard. All right, mark that down, Brandon. (laughs) You (laughs) said I'm not crazy. That's one for me. (laughs) Not to get too much on a tangent, but people, this is something that I've noticed 
over many, many drafts where people's like, well, if he doesn't work at tackle, he can go mm. work at guard. And it's like, if he doesn't work at tackle, like it's, it still doesn't mean he's automatically like it, people assume like, Oh, he didn't work at tackle because he's got bad feet. It's like, it, you can not work at tackle for a lot of reasons. Hands is one of the biggest one and going inside to guard where everything happens faster. And to be honest, I consider it harder to fit and then constantly refit with Akeem Hicks grabbing your wrist and everything like that than it is to try to fit and refit against a guy like, you know, Caleb on chase on who's, you know, 235 pounds. Like it's hard to play guard. And not to mention, like you said, you know, the quickest way to the quarterback is a straight line. It's not an automatic transition. And to have a guy that can play both like say Tevin or Slater or anything like that, Mm -hmm. that's more of a rarity than I, than I think, people know about and so i i'm glad you brought that up earlier of like it's not a guarantee that that he can do it because it's it's a totally different skill set and and one that i think people don't respect enough and that that is kind of a good transition into this guard class where there is a guy at the top of your rankings elijah barrett tucker from usc who has played both he's played tackle and he's played guard uh why don't you talk a little bit about him do you see him as more of a guard or a tackle and if you do see him as guard beyond him, are there any other guards that you're really excited about? Um, so yeah, Dickerson, or sorry, not Dickerson. Um, T- Dickerson's actually my number two guy in the whole draft, uh, not counting medical, but Vera Tucker is my number three overall offensive lineman in the draft. Um, and I mm-hmm. see him as a guard. Uh, so, you know, with him, man, I think his, his weight distribution and how well he's able to stay centered and, you know, his center of gravity, his balance, those type of things. He's always in control. He's very fluid. Um, and for a guy with his, you know, wide power base, his build, his frame to, to play that way, uh, I think is really, really impressive. Um, and I, I really like his hands as well. I think he's he's much more of a grabber than, you know, like a puncher. And inside, I think that works very well. Um, you know, he's really able to to, to generate leverage quickly on guys. Um, so I think that's important. And he drops his hips well to anchor, um, you know, a lot of posterior strength in his body to really stifle the bull rush. He's aggressive and physical on a snap to snap basis. He's very efficient climbing to the second level. Um, you know, he has the, that girth and grip strength, square power on the move to erase guys. Um, so, I mean, I, I really liked his tape. Um, you know, at, at both tackle and guard, really, but I just think his his skill set is a, and and physical dimensions are, you know, a, a easier transition inside. You know, he you know, there's there's some issues. I mean, obviously the Oregon game, everyone talks about it. He was reportedly hurt in that game, hamstring, didn't practice that week. You know, that has to be taken into account. But at the same time, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau is an absolute freak. Um, yeah. You know, so. He, he was up and down in that game for sure. Um, but I, I don't, I, that's not the main reason why I see him being a guard. It was all, it's more so what I think he can do inside than what he can do at tackle more so. Um, and, you know, I, I think one thing that I saw, this is, you know, you're, you're, it sounds like a nitpick, but I think on angle drive blocks, you know, when he's kicking out on wide zone, he has a tendency to, you know, lean in the blocks and it caused his pads to rise and his base to narrow. And, you know, so he, you know, maybe that one specific area as a run blocker in, you know, a guard or tackle is going to give him some issues. I think he can get that cleaned up. You know, that's not like a, you know, a detriment to his projection. I don't think, 
you know, it was tough to find negatives on his tape, um, for sure. 2019 included. Um, so, you know, and he only has 20 starts and, you know, to be as polished as he is, you know, with being that inexperienced, you know, that really kind of sold me on him. And then he's pretty young as well. I think he's going to turn 22 in June. Um, so, you know, I saw a lot of Joel Bentonio in his game, uh, you know, tackle guard, that, that type of thing. That's a good comp. Yeah. Stylistically, he reminded me of Joel Bentonio. So I'm, I'm very high on him. And in terms of other guards that I'm very excited about, um, none to his degree. I mean, it's a pretty steep drop off after him. Um, but like round two and three, you know, I like Wyatt Davis, um, you know, in that range, Aaron Banks, Deontay Brown. I have Jackson Carmen as a guard, Trey Smith. I mean, that's when you've been Cleveland. That's when you start getting into all those type of names. So but in terms of first round, he's the only guy for me. Yeah, going back to what you said about Vera Tucker and and what we the discussion we just had about guard tackle, one of my favorite things you've said is it's more about the plus at guard than the minus at tackle. I have him here not because he couldn't do this and I'm sliding him over, but because I really think his traits and his game translate well to this spot. Um, it reminds me very much of the sort of safety corner debate that's gone on for years. Oh, if he can't play corner, we'll just kick him into safety. And I'm like, it's not the same thing. Yeah. so right i uh i i do want to kind of touch on uh you mentioned okay he might be the only guard that goes in round one in total between <laughs> sewell slater jenkins derisaw vera tucker dickerson you have an astronomical grade on uh, I think you had him as like one of your top 10 players overall in the bleacher report board. He was like six or something like that. I mean, you yeah. love Dickerson. So I'm assuming you want him as a first round pick, you know, maybe Creed. Are, are we looking at beating last year's total of seven offensive linemen in the first round? Do you think we can get as high as it was back in 2013 where they had nine offensive linemen in the first round? I mean, it's possible. I mean, Sam Cosme, Alex Leatherwood, those guys could sneak in there. I mean, I've heard Dylan Radunes from North Dakota State's a possibility. I'm, I'm not nearly as high on him, but I mean, it's possible, man. I, I would probably guess it would be like six or seven, um, but I think rounds two and three are going to be just loaded with offensive linemen. Um, I don't know what the record is there, but I think that this probably is going to like, you know, get close to that. Um, it's just going to depend on how the end of the first goes, you know, like how many guys are going to sneak in there. Some of those names I mentioned that I, I have most of those guys in the second and third round range. And like with the Dickerson thing, you know, that's obviously not in uh, accounting medical. Um, you know, I don't factor that into any evaluation. So, you know, in turn, and that's, that's the distinction there. It's, it's, that's my evaluation of him. That's not necessarily my valuation of him, you know, in terms of valuing him, if I was drafting, I wouldn't draft him, you know, top 10 because of the medical, but I don't know necessarily how to knock that or, or, or to incorporate that into his evaluation. Um, I'm looking at his tape, you know, that's like 95% of it. And then, you know, I talk to coaches, players, trainers, people that are around them if I can, and just kind of get a feel for how they are, you know, how they are in the locker room, teammate, worker, that kind of stuff. And for him, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious he's, you know, off the field as clean as you could possibly get, um, you know, intangibles through the roof. And his tape to me was absolutely dominant. Um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're dominating SEC competition like that, 
and you and you're you know six six three thirty. Um, <laughs> you know it, it's tough not to love that guy, but you know if I was valuing him, you know probably a day day two guy because you know four season ending injuries is you know it is what it is. You know you can't really uh, overlook that if you're you know trying to value him. If that makes Do you sense. You see him as a center, or is he a center or a guard to you, or both? Both. Yeah, both. definitely both. Yeah, I could definitely see him play guard. Uh, you know, he played uh, the 2020 Tennessee game. You know, he had to bump over to left guard and played. So I got to see him there. Uh, looked the same as far as like <laughs> you know, do all the same stuff that he's doing at center. So I could definitely see him playing both. I could see him, you know, some teams liking him more at guard too, you know, just because his size and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I definitely think he could do both. And, you know, in the film room that I did with him, I think if people watch that, you know, they'll see somebody who's processing is, is, is really, really good. Um, his ability to adjust on the fly and do things mid play that the scheme necessarily doesn't have drawn out or isn't accounting for his ability to ad lib and to, you know, plug gaps that are there that he sees post snap. I mean, that type of stuff, you know, when, when you're able to do that and on top of being physically dominant, that's that's why I, I like him so much, because I think the mental side of it he has as well. So, you know, the only thing you can really say about him, I think, on tape is, you know, above average athlete, maybe, uh, you know, so he's not going to be, you know, he's not Jason Kelsey, Garrett Bradbury, you know, any of those type of guys who's flying out and, you know, cutting off, you know, backside linebackers on outside zone uncovered and stuff like that. But if he gets to the second level, uh, he, I think he's pretty efficient, and he's obviously dominant when he gets there. Yeah, he's also got three inches and thirty pounds on all those guys too. So yeah. it's a it's he's a different fat. kind of it's almost like a like a mangled type, type yeah, frame, yeah. just a, a mountain in the middle of the offensive line. But yeah, uh, this was this was awesome, Brandon. Thank you again for coming on. Uh, I'm going to throw the links to those film rooms you were referencing because I've, I've seen them and they're all phenomenal especially being able to to talk to the players in real time and kind of get their thought process on their film there's nobody else in draft media doing that right now to the level that you're doing it it's phenomenal stuff so i'm going to throw the link to that uh, the trench warfare newsletter uh everything that you do is, is great uh, hopefully our audience will check it out they'll follow you they'll learn a lot more about offensive line prospects than we could ever teach them uh so thank you again for coming on and uh with that ej let's get back to the rest of the show this week's episode is sponsored by Purple Mattress. Purple Mattress has been the most innovative sleep system on the market for over 15 years now, and it's all because of their own unique patented technology, the Purple Grid. The Purple Grid has over 1,800 open-air channels that keep you cool and comfortable throughout the night, and they're highly flexible to relieve pressure on your body, no matter your size and no matter how you sleep. I can tell you from experience, having felt that grid myself when they sent me and EJ samples, that it's an extremely cool design. The vertical channels don't look like they can support weight, but then you feel it and you kind of understand how the physics works. It, it, it doesn't look structurally sound, but trust me, it is. And it's really, really cool technology. And it's also not hot at all because of all those channels. So it's really comfortable, especially in those hot summer months. I personally love it. It's a really, really great mattress. And in fact, Purple is so confident in their mattress that every single order comes with a 100-night risk-free trial. And every single mattress also ships for free and is delivered right to your door. And at the end of your trial, if you're not completely satisfied, they'll come pick it up at no cost to you. 
So if you want to try it out for yourself, go to purple.com slash bootleg10 and use promo code bootleg10. And for a limited time with that code, you'll get 10% off of any Purple mattress order of $200 or more. Again, that is purple.com slash bootleg10, promo code bootleg10 for 10% off of any order of $200 or more. Terms and conditions, of course, apply. And with that being said, EJ, uh, why don't we move on to kind of a, a fun segment that took us longer to put together than we thought it would because there were so many names to pick from. And that is some of our favorite disruptors along the defensive line in this class. And we only had one rule when we put this together was didn't really matter what position. It just had to be guys that we hadn't talked about yet. So we were really kind of diving deep into day two and day three with some of these names. But it was a really fun exercise because it kind of almost gave me perspective that this is a a better defensive line class than I thought it was. You know, again, it's not as top heavy at the top as maybe some past years, but uh, the depth and and the excitement and the potential of some of these down the line guys, uh, I think is as good as ever. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been one of the things about this draft class. People have been bagging on the edge class in general and the defensive line class in general and saying, ah, it's just, you know, there's a couple of stars at the top and there's not that star power. We've talked about that. There's no Bosa. There's no Watt at the top of this. That's sort of that a number one. There's no chase young that everybody's saying, Oh, he's going top five for sure. But when you get past that, when you scrape off that veneer that we've had for a good two, three, four, five years in a row, there's a lot of players here who can contribute. They may not be the guy that you're just going to plug and play 1A alpha and he's going to go get double-digit sacks. That's true, but there's a lot of guys with varied skill sets. And why did we use the term disruptor? Because look, in the modern NFL, sacks are nice to have. It's a finish for sure, but pressures are the must-have. Pressures are the measure in the modern NFL of did you disrupt the opposing offense's passing play or not, and passing drives the modern NFL. So pressures are the thing. You need people who can create pressures, and pressures can come from anywhere in the front seven. They can come from defensive tackles, ideally from the inside. That's great. Inside pressure really throws quarterbacks off their rhythm, but they can come from all over the front seven. So for our purposes, we're really going to concentrate on the front seven, the defensive line. Now, I sort of slice that into defensive tackles, defensive ends, who are those bigger sort of five-tech guys or four-three defensive ends, and then the true edge players, the outside linebackers, your classic pass rushers, right? But uh, in going through this, I actually didn't pick any of those guys. I didn't pick any of the sort of edge or wing players, largely because we talked about a couple of them on defensive gems. And some of my favorite defensive tackles we talked about on defensive gems, too. So it was a great opportunity to dig deeper into that defensive tackle class, the defensive end class, and look at some of these varied skill sets and and see guys who maybe don't fit the the sort of prototype mold, but who are really, really fun. So we're both going to pick three players and then a sleeper or two. Uh, the first one that I wanted to pick is just pure chalk and I wanted a defensive <laughs> tackle and I wanted a disruptor. I wanted not just a run stuffer. Um, I was watching Davion Nixon this weekend and he's got some of that. He's a pure power guy, but he's really a guy, you know, classic Iowa nose tackle. He's going to plug it up. I wanted somebody who could do a little bit of both. And as I watched more and more, I was like, you're just trying to not pick Christian Barmore. <laughs> You should yeah. just pick Christian Barmore because he is 
something else. And when he declared, it kind of reshifted the entire tackle look at this draft. Uh, we talked about that during the defensive gems episode when we were talking about Tommy Togia and why nobody was talking about him. It really, when Barmore declared, it was like, well, Barmore's DT one. This guy is six foot five, three ten, and a redshirt sophomore. He is first year draft eligible player, which means three years out of high school. Six five, three ten, physically dominant in every way. He's got strength, power size and quickness which at his size at his physical size is ridiculous and as you watch this class and you go back and watch barmore you think okay i haven't seen that <laughs> like i haven't seen that combination of size quickness and power nobody else has it that's why he's dt1 he can create pressure from the interior very few guys and i mean very few guys in the nfl match up one-on-one with him if you're not double teaming him you're in trouble because he can win again with strength, with quickness, with movement skills, with raw power, just bumping you out of the way. And one of the things I like best about Christian Barmore, besides the obvious physical skills, is he played huge down the stretch. When the lights were the brightest in the national championship chase for Alabama, if you watched those games versus Notre Dame, he had five tackles, four of them solo, a sack and a tackle for loss. He blew up multiple plays for the Irish it, it just, again, that's the, a good offensive line too. Yeah. Three, four of those guys are going to get drafted. Right. And he just made life hell for them. They couldn't run through the middle. He would burst through the middle and chase guys to the edge again, because he's not limited with speed. A lot of the classic bigger interior players. I'm thinking about like Jerron Reed right now. Jerron Reed had a very good first year with creating pressures, but he was not a threat to get to the edge. You weren't getting by him. He's an ultimate yeah. two-gapper, but he didn't have the range of a guy like Barmore. So, you know, he did that versus Notre Dame and Alabama pretty much thoroughly outclassed Notre Dame. Then they went on to OSU, again, has five tackles, Alabama's only sack versus OSU, and just blew up plays for them left and right. The The ESPN commentating team in that game was like, it's that man again. <laughs> like They said that like three times. Guess who it is? It's that man again. It's Christian Barmore. And you know, again, that is you're you're chasing for the national championship. You're playing in games that really matter. You know, everybody's you know watching that game and is gonna watch that game a billion times. If you're in the scouting game, there's 15, 20 guys in that game that are gonna get drafted in this draft. Easy. You know, he knows everybody's watching and he just dominated. He played, he raised his level of play and just played tremendously good football. So um, while Barmore seems like the, the ultimate chalk choice for this list, it was very hard to get away from his name. I was looking for like, well, this guy does this thing better. This guy does this thing, but they're not better than Christian Barmore. They're just not. In terms of overall package. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Like I think Levi, I would I would argue Levi's ceiling is up there, but in terms of like day one, what are you getting day one? Yeah, Christian Barmore's that dude in this class. I I, I don't think there's an argument otherwise. Um, Plus, I couldn't my, pick Levi because you already picked him in ten gems. So I, yeah, <laughs> and, and I'm I'm a Levi apologist. I always have been and I always will be because I I think back to because I remember 2018. I think it was his first year where he got significant playing time. And that's where I've, I I remember first seeing him and I was like, who the hell is that dude? And he wasn't eligible yet. So I didn't, I didn't really go back and watch him. And then he opted out for, for 2020. And 
I kind of got reintroduced to him at the senior bowl. And, uh, you know, he shows up day one and just starts kicking ass. I was like, yeah, I, I, I remember that kid. He was amazing. And I, I think he's still going to be amazing, <laughs> but, uh, there's yeah, a lot a of that bit... this year. There's oh, a yeah, lot yeah, of guys yeah. that yeah. I'm like, did they play in 2020? And I look back and no, they opted out. And I go back to their 2019 tape and I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember this. Yeah. yeah. Half of Michigan's roster, it seemed like opted out, but yeah. not that I blame them. Um, my number one guy is speaking of Michigan, by the way, is uh quitty pay who i guess you can call him a defensive end but he also played a lot of tackle for them i mean they moved him all over the place he measured in in his pro day at 6'2 260 and still put up 36 on the bench 33 inch arms not super long but okay um but you know 35 and a half i think uh, vert four five in the 40 like the dude's an absolute freak of nature and so you wonder it's like how do they have a 260 pound guy playing you know dt like playing three tech on like a lot of snaps and it's like well because he's really freaking strong and really explosive and he's one of those dudes where it doesn't really matter where he plays he's he's going to be more athletic than the guy in front of him and when i try to you know figure out how to project him i'm like he's he's not really like a lot of other players you know he's got some everson griffin to him he's got some michael bennett to him like he's there's no real good comp for quitty pay and i mean that in a very positive manner because he's so athletic so explosive so powerful um you know he plays his ass off like his motor's great and you know clearly he's versatile enough that you can kind of move him all over the front and be totally fine i almost want him to go to God, what would be like a, a Patriots or a Dolphins style defense where it's like, hey, we're going to throw a bunch of guys at you from different angles and we're going to line them up in five different spots over the course of this game. Go figure it out. Like he's the kind of guy um, like what the Patriots did with Uche, where it's, you know, Uche was playing Mike. He was, you know, playing edge. They lined him up inside. Like they, they did everything with Uche and they did everything with Quiddy. And the Patriots are going to end up using Uche in that way. And I think the Dolphins could use Quiddy in that way, um, where he's just that movable, ass-kicking chess piece that it doesn't matter, uh, you know, where you put him, he's going to be successful. I'm, I'm a big fan of Quiddy Pay. I have him as my, well, I shouldn't say I have him as my edge too, because I'm trying to decide between <laughs> him and Ronnie Perkins. But Ronnie Perkins and him are two totally different players and two totally different play styles so it's a little bit hard to compare but the only guy that i absolutely for sure have over quitty pay is jalen phillips and you know how much i love jalen phillips so that tells you how much i love quitty pay i think he's an easy first round pick probably a top 20 pick and i wouldn't be surprised to see him go as high as like 14 to the vikings i i, I could very easily see that yeah i agree with you on the sort of top 20 projection and put him in a lineup and figure it out. There's spots where he would be better and spots where he would be not as good, but he's going to be good wherever he goes just because of his, his tools, his motor, he's got skills. If he gets with a coaching staff that has a plan for him, he's going to be successful. I could see him be very successful. You mentioned the sort of Patriots tree defenses. I could see him be very successful in a place like Pittsburgh. I could see him be very Ooh. successful as like the as an OLB. The, you think? Uh, I mean, he's athletic enough for it. Like, uh, yeah, they tend to like their guys taller, like Bud Dupree, right? Yeah. Um, but again, Quipe is 
compact, explosive, powerful. I could see them doing some good things with him. I could see him as like the Leo in the Hawks defense, right? Yeah, that's, behind Dunlap. You know, that's absolutely a role I could project him into very easily, but I could project him into almost any defense because he's a top 20 pick and you could find <laughs> a role for him because he is physically dominant. I know a lot of people are out there going, well, Barmore and Quiddy Pay, woo woo, why'd I tune in? Like that's chalk. Those guys are, you know, trust me, the list is going to get more interesting, but you, you hit on a really interesting point about a couple of years ago, I went to sort of defensive line and edge. And then I quickly realized that defensive line wasn't specific enough and I split it into defensive tackle, defensive end, and edge. And there's still a ton of overlap, and we're going to get into some players that kind of blur that line. Pity, Quiddy's one of them that, you know, it's like, well, is he is he this or is he this? Would you play him at this tack or would you play him outside? Like, has the movement skills to play outside, but on, on you know, obvious passing downs or dime downs, you could you could slide that guy into three because yeah. he's explosive. Which is what Michigan did. Uh, Absolutely. They put him in at three all the time because – even if he's taking on a guard one-on-one, he was so powerful. And, and he had this kind of like really low stance where, I mean, his butt was like, he's built like a fire for sure. Yeah. Like, and he would just get up and under and he's so strong again, you know, like 35 or 36 inch vert 36 on the bench as well. It's a solid two sixty. It's like running into a tree stump. So it's like, you know, is he powerful enough to anchor against like a double team coming at him from the side? Probably not. But if he's just taking on a guard, one-on-one is a three he's he's too strong for most guards to handle so yeah Yeah. you can play him inside even though he's 6'2 260 which is typical edge dimensions you know it's 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 like a it's like if god he, he he's built like uh Shaq Barrett but thicker stronger and more explosive which should terrify people because generally this explosive human square running at you and and there's nothing you could do about it. He does look a little bit like a Minecraft character. (laughs) He's (laughs) built out of blocks. Uh, Uh, But so I had divided it into just D line or yeah, D line and edge. And then I went to DT defensive end and edge. And I felt bad about that until I looked up one of the sites, um, NFL draft Bible one of our friends, Mark Jarvis, is working with this year. Uh, they have seven different categories. <laughs> they have nose guard, defensive tackle, 4-3 DE, 3-4 DE, 3-4 OB, 4-3 OB. Like they have, they have every slice. And I think that might be a little bit too much, whereas mine was a little bit too few. But it's just a, to sort of hit hammer home the point that these guys have all different body types. Different teams play them in different ways. They play light guys inside. They play heavy guys outside. Um, small, fast guys to beat guards with quickness. It's it's just all over the board. You see some huge guys outside playing OLB, and then you see tiny guys who are like 240 on a good day um, yeah. rushing the passer off the outside. So there's just a, a tremendous range from guys like Tyler Shelvin, who's the nose guard for LSU, who's like three. 65 generously i think he's probably more like 375 just a massive I mean, human being coach o called him out for being three so coach o said he was 375 at his heaviest and coach o is not a light guy nice. himself so you know he's got some I mean, sensitivity to that but incomprehensibly heavy yeah so that guy is like the block in the middle and then you're going down to guys who are as light as 235 or 240 on the outside and they're they're kind of all getting run together 
Um, so that made, that was one of the things that made these choices really difficult. But, um, my second choice wasn't all that difficult. It's a guy I really wanted to talk about. We hadn't talked about him yet. And that is Carlos Boogie Basham Jr. out of Wake Forest. Um, 6'3", 281. So more of a classic five tech size, 4'3", DE size, which is the way Wake Forest played him. He is a redshirt senior, so he's a five-year player at Wake Forest. Um, plays with violence. He is one of the guys that when he gets a hold of you, you'll know it. <laughs> he got <laughs> Daniel Jones in uh, the game against Duke when Daniel Jones was still there, and he thrashed him. Like He came around, grabbed him by the waist, and like slung him down. Completely legal, not dirty, but like Daniel Jones knew he'd been hit. Uh, and then uh, playing against Virginia Tech, he hit uh, Hooker, their QB, on a run in midair, just blew the ball out of him, like completely separated the ball from a forced fumble because he was coming across. Here comes Hooker and Basham just yeah. whack. Um, he, when he gets a hold of you, you'll know. He he plays with a real strength and a real violence. He's fast in space. Um. He ran down Jordan Love when Jordan Love was playing for Nevada, and there's uh, he loves loop stunts. They line him up at, at like a seven outside and just let the first guy hit the tackle, and he scrapes and goes inside on a loop stunt. He did it against Rice and Michigan State and just blasted the quarterback because he's coming. He's got ahead of steam, um, and in a straight line, he can move. So he can overwhelm blockers when he really hits it in the combination. He's got good hands and some fun combos uh, against Virginia Tech. He He's feasted against them over a couple of years. Uh, great swim move. He's got a great double-hand swipe move this year versus Duke where he just blasts the tackle. It's, it's almost disrespectful. Like The tackle puts his arms up, and he's like, get out, and just <laughs> crushes the quarterback. So you see him combine those things. Um and he, one of my favorite things is, and this is a trend we picked up on last year, the edge rushers really struggle against tight ends because they're big enough and they're more mobile, right? They're super agile, and some guys just can't get around tight ends. He does not struggle with tight ends. He is big enough at 280 um, versus UNC. They've got a pretty good tight end at UNC. He just kind of went, yeah, nah, and Sam Howell was his um, so I like that about him. Bats passes down, even at six, three, he's got pretty long arms. Um, saw him do it against Trevor a couple of times where he just, he knew he wasn't going to get to him. So he just kind of played the neutral and was like, all right, I'm gonna play volleyball now. Go ahead, throw it. <laughs> ah. Um, and his flashes are extremely bright, but the thing about Carlos Bashan, the reason he's not sort of edge one or DE one is you want to see the consistency from down to down and game to game. And you want to see him harness those combos and make those flashes the norm. It's not that they're rare. You see them pretty often, but for him to really ascend to that player that you absolutely is a can't miss guy, you want to see the consistency because sometimes he'll kind of just get locked in and start to push at 280. Um, you know, first move doesn't work and he'll just kind of lock in. He does work throughout the down and I do appreciate that. He'll keep at it and he'll get cleanup sacks as well. So that's, I feel pretty good about him as a high round pick. Uh, but if you're really hoping that he becomes that a one alpha rusher, you're going to have to see those combos be regularized. If that's a word, um, and <laughs> normalized, to, yeah, to see that be the norm, to be surprised when he doesn't double move somebody when he doesn't use two moves in combination 
Um, and you do see that stuff. So, you know, it's there. It's just coaxing that out of him on a more regular basis. Not that he loafs. He doesn't, but sometimes he, he almost just kind of looks like, well, didn't work and I got bored. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to heave on this guy for, for this down. Um, and you know, he can do so much more because you've seen it. You've seen inside spins and all these combo hand moves and pure speed on the outside, double hand swipes, just blowing guys away with power. Um, overwhelming guards with speed he's got it all you just want to see it more often but he's a he's a fun player i really like watching him i remember because i i just recently went through all the senior bowl one-on-ones again and watching him string his feet and his hands together on like these arm overs outside he really likes going to his right with that kind of club arm over combo, whether he's lined up on the left side or the right side, he likes going to his right. So sometimes it's inside and sometimes it's outside, depending on where he's lined up, but he feels super comfortable with that combo, which you'll see from, from defensive linemen that are right-handed sometimes where they really only feel confident if they're clubbing with their right hand, they don't feel good with it with their left. So they'll kind of only go to one side, but you know, even if he's a one-trick pony in that, it's a, it's a hell of a trick. The only guy that I saw stop it was um, who's that Grambling State center? Oh, uh, more shit, more yeah. Who just you know got him and and you know more is just a he's a circle. <laughs> it's extremely round uh, in yeah, in a good way. Round. Like I like yeah. him a lot, but he can anchor, and if he gets a hold of you, you, you nah. Yeah, and that's and, the kind uh, of thing. Gosh, he's like, that up. It was like nah, you're not going yeah. anywhere. Yeah, and it was funny because you know Mort was just holding on to the whole time. Literally, you hear it on the audio. He was like, "Where are you going? Where are you going? What you <laughs> yeah, doing? Where are you going?" <laughs> and I forgot to do this on the first one, but I need to. Uh, so you guys have been asking the comments, "What about X? What about X?" Whenever we talk about a list of players, why didn't you talk about blank? Why did you talk about? And those are good questions. And I ended up answering them in the comments, and I thought, "Oh, it'd be so much better to answer that in the actual podcast or video." So. Uh, because this was such a difficult choice for both of us as we were picking these guys, I made a list of other players I considered at the spot. And um, for Barmore, stepping back to the defensive tackle, I looked at Aleem McNeil, uh, McNeil, Jay Tefele from USC, Jonathan Marshall from Arkansas, and Bobby Brown from Texas A&M. Bobby Brown the third uh, from Texas A&M. So if you want to dig in, I'm not going to talk about all those guys, but if you want to dig in, there's some other names. You could do some deep scouting. Um, Tons of fun in that list. Uh, lots of good players. Um, some real surprises for me. Um, and then for Boogie Bash, I'm the other guys I considered at that sort of five spot are a guy that Brett's going to talk about in Peyton Turner and Adeko Kumbo Ugandeji from Notre Dame. And I had to say his whole first name because apparently his mom doesn't like when announcers shorten it to Ade. She doesn't want her son called Ade, so... Those announcers Kubo. are cowards that don't want to learn. Uh, apparently, anyways. So, but Ogundeji's a ton of fun. Reminds me of some of Basham, um, and can really mix it up in the pocket. But uh, again, some more names to scout and go a little bit deeper on. So, who is your second disruptor? So this is one that um, I'm not sure how many people listening to the podcast are going to know his name, but I think they will eventually because he's going to be one of these not small school, but smaller school guys that that goes in the top 100 picks and, and people are like, who the hell is that? But what did they Milton do? Williams, what did they do? Milton Williams from Louisiana Tech. Um, I, I want to read something off here because he just had his pro day uh, <laughs> today or no, you know, two days ago. Uh, two days ago, yeah. 
so there's something um, called relative athletic score. RAS, good stuff. RAS, it's it's been used a lot more frequently in in the past few years. And what it does is it looks at a prospect's size and weight and then uh, kind of looks at all of their, uh, you know, length and and the jumps and the 40 and the splits and the shuttles and the three cone and and kind of, uh, again, compares it relatively to other athletes at that position and other athletes that are also at that size. So it's, it, it's a way to kind of compare like how athletic is this guy compared to other people that play his spot, considering his size and length and everything like that. Like in terms of total athletic package, where does he rank? So Milton Williams is an absolute freak at 6'3, 284, ran a 4.67. His 10 split was 1.65, which is, amazing his staggering is that way six five yeah it's 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 like aaron donald um his shuttle was four three three which is ridiculous he had a sub seven three cone at 284 which is like 99th percentile let alone at 284 like i i don't even know if anybody that heavy's ever done that like it's insane 34 on the bench uh 38 and a half vertical again at six three two eighty four ten one in the broad and I, I was looking at this tweet, and his relative athletic score was 9.95 out of a possible 10. This uh, numerical formula has been applied to 1,342 defensive end prospects between 1987 and this year. You want to know what he's ranked out of 1,342 prospects ever? Eighth. He is one of the eight most most athletic defensive linemen in the last 35 years, at least just from pro day numbers. And that's absolutely ridiculous. But then when you turn on the tape, you see it. You absolutely see it. And I, I think he's it's it's hard to say, oh, he's an Aaron Donald level athlete because no, nobody's numbers ever that I've seen have shown up more on tape than Aaron Donald. I'm not saying it's that. But in terms of you watch how he runs down people in open space, you watch how he corners, like especially the the cone drills show up when he corners. Like somebody 285 shouldn't be able to just plant one foot in the ground and immediately change direction like he does. Um, the, The power that he brings on initial contact, like this dude is a freak. He's an absolute freak. And I, I'm very excited to see him in the league because I think you can play him at base end and then kick him inside a nickel, kind of like a quitty pay. Now, quitty, I think, is stronger, but I think Milton Williams corners better than quitty pay. Like he he bends and flattens and finishes rushes better than quitty pay, which is horrifying if I was an offensive lineman because somebody at 285 shouldn't be able to corner like that. He's he's not as polished as a pass rusher. Doesn't use his hands as well. But you give him to an NFL coaching staff in a couple of years, just take the athlete and give him to an NFL coaching staff that can develop him. I mean, there is no ceiling. There's literally no ceiling to what he can accomplish. He's that athletic. Yeah, when you watch his hands, he doesn't have combo moves, and he doesn't have as many hand moves as somebody like Donald. That was that was one of Donald's hallmarks, especially when he went, went to the Senior Bowl. But he'd been practicing for years on getting his hands quick. 
and being able to link two and even three hand moves together, which was the thing that kind of sold me that regardless of all the concerns about Donald's side, Donald's was going to be fine because I was like, he has better hand use than just about any defensive prospect I've ever seen. Now, Milton's hand use is not like that, but when he hits the move, oh yeah, like there's some reps of him versus guard. When he hits the move, he is gone. Like he is by them. It's but up and He's in the backfield. And at that point, if you're the quarterback, you're literally crapping your pants because here comes this guy that's 280 and he's already in your face. You're backing up and he's, his hand is like two feet from your face because he beat the guard basically without any friction. Um, mm-hmm. And that is not a rare thing on Milton Williams tape. That's That was a thing on Milton Williams tape. And then like two plays later, he just gets under a guy's rib cage and just forklifts him out of the way. And this is a big, like chunky guard. And again, he's not super tall. So he just kind of turns and goes, Chuck. And this guy's like, Whoa, yeah, <laughs> this is what you see on tape from people. the guard, you know? Yeah. And you're like, okay. Um, all right. Yeah. So that's the first two reps I see is him, you know, hand hand fighting, just basically hand passing a guard and then forklifting the guy out of the way, like two plays later. And you're like, okay, this guy's got, this guy's got tools. We can work with this. So I'm really glad you brought him up. He's a guy I considered um, certainly when I was looking at the defensive tackle and, and after his pro day, I said uh, referencing a conversation that you and I'd had that everybody's looking for that flashing three tech in this draft. And nobody's, everybody's kind of like Aleem is kind of that, but Aleem is not that he's not that flashy penetrating. I'm talking about like a Geno Atkins sort of, crushing you know slashing three tech milton williams might be like that's the guy that has the goods that could make that come true with the right coaching staff he's got everything all the raw materials he needs um to make that work so and getting a ton of buzz especially after his pro day but people are now going back to his tape because of the numbers and they're like oh wait he can play too it's not just that he's a workout warrior so Super fun player. I I'm I'm bullish on Milton Williams. He ain't gonna last a hundred picks. People are always like, oh, yeah. he's not making top hundred. Like I've talked to the very few people I know in the league who actually know, uh, who who I don't want to say no because nobody knows about the draft, but who are who are as ear to the ground as they can be this time of year. And I sent one of them a, a mock draft. I started doing mock drafts the other day, and I sent one of them a mock draft. And he was like, yeah, <laughs> Milton Williams at 170, right. Oh, there's no chance. He's like, there's he's not no getting chance. past 100. He's not a triple-digit guy. And I was like, okay, cool. And I, I believe it. So, uh, anyways, the league is very bullish on Milton Williams. But uh, my third is a guy very close to you in proximity, uh, Osa Odigizua. Now, this is the younger brother of the Odigizua that came out two or three years ago from UCLA. And uh, Osa is as good, if not better. And that's uh, funny because I liked his older brother quite a bit. (laughs) Uh, But he has, Osa's got one of the craziest builds you're ever going to see. He is 6'2", so short-ish for a football player, for defensive lineman. 280, but he has 34-inch arms. (laughs) I was about to bring that up. He's like... He's he's stocky, he's got but oh, also Groot, <laughs> right? He's also Groot. <laughs> he is Groot. I am Groot. Uh, and you'll see him use his power. So really fun player. Redshirt senior, by the way. So he's been there a while. 
uh, played mostly inside for UCLA. And this is where it gets weird, where you can't really go through a position list and say, oh, he's 6'2", 280, he's five tech or out or farther out. No, he largely played either nose or three tech for UCLA. Um, has a very good bull rush, uses that 6'2 frame and leverage, drops his backside and can move people with just pure power. And then the funny thing is with those arms, just reach around somebody, even if he hasn't beat them, if they're still in front of him, he can push them back into the quarterback and reach over and like grab their shoulder pads, which for a quarterback is a very unsettling thing. You see many of them kind of react like what? Like I have a blocker in front of me. How's this guy getting a hold of me? But he just literally whack. Reaches I think over. he got like a. It was. I don't know if they called it a fumble or a pass batted, but he got that like on a left tackle. Oh God, what game was? I, it was somebody with red uniforms. I don't know if it was OU or if it was uh, like Wild <clears> or something <throat> like that. But I remember he 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 got over the outside shoulder left tackle and just swiped <laughs> and hit the ball. And it's like you can only do that if your arms are that long. He's, yeah, he's, he's got those dudes. amazing range. Uh, so. An example of what I'm talking about, the Oregon game in 2020 gets that good leverage drive on a guard drives him basically right back into the quarterback's lap and then just reaches around and grabs the back of his jersey and kind of just pulls the two of them down together. Uh, It's kind of a sandwich deal. Um, If he gets under a block, like if they don't quite get him, he's not a guy Mm. that's not quick. He is super quick. And so you'll see this against zone schemes. Um, in the Oklahoma game in 2018, which was his first year playing, Trey Sermon was still at Oklahoma and they basically ran a zone, right? It shifted right in front of him and the gap was open and he went straight through and nailed Trey Sermon for about a three or four yard loss. Just like, all right, if you're not going to touch me, I'm low enough and quick enough. I can just squeeze right between you guys and nail the running back. So too quick for a lot of guards. If you watch the 2018 Washington game, oh yeah, he gave Jake Browning, uh, a day um remember nailed. him jake browning yeah jake browning i was like who's that and i was like oh that's not easy that's <laughs> browning okay that's 2018 which means he's been doing it for a while again redshirt senior he's been there um but you see him against all these teams oklahoma oregon washington um there's a couple of, there's some plays against like uh cincinnati where he shows that forklift stack shed they played cincinnati in 2019 he shows a true stack and shed. He's got the guard. He gets extended with those arms. Here comes the back, and he just kind of goes like this and almost uses the guard as leverage to push himself towards the back. It's like a three-yard tackle for a loss. Um, and again, when he's that close, when he's reduced the angle and pushed the guard into the backfield, it's like a goalie being out in your face, like there's nowhere to go for that guy and with those arms. He was never getting by him. So he's got this weird mix of skills where he's got power, he can come from the outside. He plays with great leverage. If you don't touch him, he's well fast enough to flush the quarterback or even a fast running back. Um, so it, strangely at this kind of weird, like, what do you do with him spot? Uh, again, I would probably play him at a at like a five because he could thrive there with the length. But on passing downs, I'm moving this guy inside because he's going to whip a lot of guards with his combination of sort of that short leverage and speed. Um, but other guys I looked at at this spot were Milton Williams, Jalen Twyman from Pittsburgh, who's getting a lot of crap about a lousy pro day. But if you look at his tape, his tape is his tape was full. different. His tape yeah. is full of these plays. Like he was trying every bit to live up to the Aaron Donald rep at Pitt, and he came damn close. Um, don't 
don't sleep on Twyman. Somebody's going to get a value on Twyman because they're going to lean on the pro day numbers and they're not going to lean on the tape. And the tape is a disruptor. Like Jalen Twyman is so, That's why I was so surprised by the pro day numbers, though, because I was like, it didn't look that uh, way. On I think Pittsburgh is the only school that kind of was like mad at their players and like, I don't know, like watered the surface before they ran or something because everybody else like sprayed stick them before people ran because there's been more four twos and four threes this year than I've ever seen. And then the numbers come out of Pittsburgh and it's like four, <laughs> six and a four, nine. And you're like for a safety and a defensive lineman. And you're like, they look faster. Like were they, did they not pay their library fines or something? Or are they just mad? Did, did you see the Caleb Farley video, by the way? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. for people that don't know, Caleb Farley, I don't know if it was him or his agent or something like that released a video of him running a 40 and like four two four. Yeah, four two. But whatever. here's the thing. It starts out at like a certain camera angle and then cuts the first step of the four, like just skips. And then all of a sudden the clock starts. And it's like you you realize we're not idiots, right? Like we we can see the video. It's <laughs> cut. We're not dumb. Like we know he's fast. He ran 24 miles an hour. Yeah, no, you he's crazy. Lie to us. Yeah, you know he's a lie to us though. Crazy like, fast. But uh, a lot of the pro days, what we're alluding to is a lot of the pro days with COVID, no combine, no centralized anything. You see numbers every day. Guy ran a four two. Guy ran a four two. Guy ran a four two. I'm like, usually there's like two to maybe five four twos. Usually like two or three at the combine for all 300 participants. There've been like three a day. It's been, yeah, I lost count. Yeah. I mean, everybody running four, four is yeah. Everybody running four, four, like big guys running four, four guys that are two fifty who are linebackers running four, four. Oh yeah. He ran a four, four, five. I'm like, yeah, sure. He did. That's why like, I just, I rely on, uh, on Andre, uh, Andre Weargarden who literally for all like the major prospect forties, he'll do frame by frame and then do the actual time. And sometimes yeah. it's faster and sometimes it's slower, but at least it's something you can believe. Like he, he did a Justin Fields today who was reported to run at four, four, four. And then he slowed it down frame by frame. He's like, no, it was actually four, four flat. So, you know, he doesn't bullshit with it or anything like that, but yeah. I just rely more on those. Cause it's. Just, yeah. The, the straight pro day numbers that are unadulterated. If they're not scout numbers, like Jim Nagy's been reporting NFL scout numbers for his forties. Um, you know, again, the stuff that comes from uh, agents uh, or or trainers that are being paid by the athletes, like, of course, they want those numbers to look good. They want their guy to be fast. Um, so a little bit tough uh, to to put a whole bunch of stock in speed numbers this year. But who is your third disruptor? Well, I'll, I'll get to my third in a second, because I forgot to tell you this when you were talking about Osa. You know what oh. team has apparently been talking to osa quite a bit and as soon as he said it it made so much sense to me because he's a perfect fit and it kind of reminds me a little bit in different ways of both of the guys they already have there pittsburgh in terms of playing that five kicking into three like he's got a little bit of to it to him he's got a little bit of hayward to him he's not those guys entirely um but in terms of just like the strength the length the the untapped potential he reminds me a lot of when Tua was and I have I have a higher grade on to it when he was coming out of Notre Dame like I had him as like a top 15 pick 
because I loved him. Like he was like my ideal five technique and he's bigger and a little bit stronger, but uh, Osa's not that far behind. And it makes total sense that Pittsburgh's looking at him because he is so their prototype <laughs> in terms of what they look for at defensive end. So just wanted to bring that up. Uh, my third guy um, is Cam Sample from Tulane, who's been getting a little bit of buzz. He also recently had a pro day. Um, again, you know, these are all from NFL scouts. Jim Nagy tweeted them out, so that they're they're not the more bullshit numbers, I guess you could say. But measured in at uh, 6'2 and three quarters, 267, which is pretty good size. Uh, 33 and a half inch arms, which again, more than adequate. Uh, 40 in about 4'8. Some scouts had them at 4'79, some had them at 4'81. So we'll split the baby and call it 4'8. Vertical, which you can't fake, 37. Broad, almost 10 feet, about 9'8. A short shuttle at 448, three cone at 739. So I almost look at him as like a diet version of Milton Williams. He's a little bit smaller, um, but still really explosive. But I also think he's a little bit further on the spectrum in terms of polish. I think he he uses his hands a little bit better. I think he u- takes advantage of his natural leverage a little bit better. Um, he's got a, a wicked uh, inside move when he's lined up as a three technique in terms of how he gets by guards. Uh it's it, it's pretty gross and i he's he's really really productive as a pass rusher both from the edge and from inside because he's too quick too quick for guards excuse me but he's really good at leverage and power against tackles that are you know, mostly like four inches on him so he just gets under him and you know gives that that long arm stab and just shoves him to the back of the pocket so he he kind of varies up his rushing style depending on what position he plays but a little bit more polished than Milton Williams, but still a really good athlete in his own right. In terms of where he's going to play in the league, it's tough to say because with his measurements and and his physical profile, I, I could I could see him thriving again in one of those defenses where it's like we're playing you on the edge as a base end and then kicking you inside as a pass rusher. You know, Miami does that. New England does it. Uh, anybody in the Seattle mold does it. But the hard part is that not every defense operates that way. Some defenses are going to want you to be full-time edge, which I don't think he is. Some defenses are going to want you to be full-time three, which I don't think he is. So there's going to be some teams that don't really value him at all. And there's going to be some teams that value him a lot. So it's really hard for me to kind of project where he's going to go because of that. Yeah, I want to see him in a four-man line. I like Cam Sample a lot. And I want to see him in a four-man line. I do not want to see him in a base sort of three-four, um, where they're even rushing sort of nickel out of. Because I again, I'm with you. I don't think he's. I really don't think he's a true edge. But as a as a straight five, like just thinking about the Bears, right? The Bears wouldn't like him as a straight five because he's not big enough. He's not Bilal Nichols, right? He's not two eighty, mm-hmm. right? two eighty-five, right? They want their guy. They would like, want Milton. They would. They would want Milton to be honest. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I want to see him in a four man line, like a true four man line, even if it's four man line running nickel, like I want to see him as the edge in a four man line, like the defensive end, I should say, not edge, not to confuse things. Um, but I like sample a lot and I actually have one of his teammates as my sleeper. And I forgot to mention take Graham just to satisfy all the Texan fans. Uh, Cause we got off on a Jalen Twyman tangent, but it was Milton Williams, Jamin Twyman and Taquan Graham were my three that I considered uh, when I was looking at Osa. Um, 
But let's get into the sleepers a little bit because I went through a bunch of guys looking for this and you might be like, hey, man, you didn't pick any like true edges, right? You didn't pick any of those fast guys outside. And and just hats off to Aziz Ojolari. We know we haven't talked about him. We'll find a way to talk about him. He's the guy that everybody's talking about, kind of like Barmore at the top of the defensive tackle rankings. Ojolari's talking about he's he's the guy that is near the top of everybody's edge rankings. We know we're not talking about him. We know he's there. Good player. We'll talk about him in a bit. But I actually ended up with, again, because I couldn't decide, sue me, two sleepers. Uh, And the first one is Hamaka Rashid from Oregon State. And had this guy on my list. I'd seen him before, but just pretty much in highlights. I dug into him last night and came away really impressed. This guy plays. Both guys from Oregon State play really well this year. Uh, They're running back and Hamakar Rashid, who is crazy versatile, played three spots for them, really smart, good length. Um, reminds me of a version of what people wanted Leonard Floyd to be in Chicago, which is that versatile, can go forward, can go backwards. And they played him at a true sort of 4-3 DE. They played him at a three, kicked him inside on passing downs. And again, he beat guards with length and quickness. And then they played him as a true outside linebacker that was covering tight ends occasionally and going backwards. Um, really smart player doesn't often win on his first rush, which, uh, first rush move, which is what everybody's looking for in a kind of a true edge, but wins all the time on his second move. He's just in the right spot when he spins around the quarterbacks there, when he redirects, he's got a nice little yank move. He's got good long arms, great versatile player, really like him. And then my other guy, I've got a question for you. Who's the best Mm. spin move? in a defensive end or edge that you can remember in the league? Uh, I mean, it's got to be Dwight Freeney. Got to be Dwight Freeney, right? That's the yeah. answer. If, if you're looking at true spin moves, and spin moves are one of those moves where almost everybody tries them, and very few players have one that's really effective. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we've talked about this. Player will spin in place. <laughs> the offensive tackle is like, I'll just wait on your hips. Like, no, nah, you're not going anywhere. Okay, now I'll re-engage. Or you're trying to spin off contact. Guy just puts his sort of brace up there and you don't make any lateral movement. Lots of spin moves are ineffective. Um, some of them work, but some of them are kind of like, we usually end up saying, oh, he's got an okay spin move. He's got a decent spin move. Patrick Johnson from Tulane. So Cam Sample's teammate, the true edge, smaller guy. More linebacker for sure. Best spin move I've seen since Freeney. Like he has really? that inside plant snap, and I'm like a yard and a half to your right or left, and you're really going, ah, now I'm off balance and I'm reaching, I'm lunging, and I don't have any leverage on you. Um, I'm not saying he's Freeney, but his spin move is legit. He's quick, and he has that instinct, right? Uh, we talk about that finishing instinct for a rusher. Like, does he get home? Patrick Johnson gets home. He's a lot of fun. He's way down the board. He is not going to be talked about in the top flight of edge rushers. Um, there are other things he doesn't do well. He can be overwhelmed by power pretty easily if he does get engaged. But, man, he's got that finishing instinct. He's got pretty good speed. Uh, decent bend. I wouldn't say bend is his, is his best quality, but that spin move is legit. And after watching, like, I don't know, tens, hundreds of spin moves from all kinds of different players that just never work. It's so refreshing to see a guy that like is getting clean with the spin move. And that's Patrick Johnson. You know who low-key had a great spin move coming out of college, but the problem was he didn't have anything else. 
<laughs> and 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 that ended up bearing out in the NFL. Uh, Vic Beasley. Remember yeah. Vic Beasley, uh, move at Clemson. Oh, it was yeah. dirty. Oh, yeah. so good. I'm with you. I I got deep into the Vic Beasley debate because it was the Leonard Floyd, you know, comparison. Leonard Floyd, you know, oh, you should take Vic Beasley, Vic Beasley, right? And I was not a huge Beasley fan because he was not super like he had. He was more one trick pony, and I didn't think the pony. I didn't think the trick was that great. The pony was that great. Um, anyways, was never a huge Vic Beasley fan. There were a lot of Bears fans that wanted Vic Beasley the year he came out. Um, so yeah, I have I have a little PTSD about Beasley. <laughs> uh, well, my my sleeper is somebody who you mentioned earlier on the show, and that's uh, Peyton Turner from Houston. I mean, we talk about you know, Groot arms with, uh, with Osa and Groot Peyton legs. Turner's, he's got Groot everything. I mean, he's, he's got Groot legs. He's so long. He's we, when scouts say he's, uh, like high hipped or long legged, right. Yeah. That that's Peyton Turner. He's that guy. He reminds me a little bit of, um, Chris Jones, just physical build wise. Oh, cause Jones's hip bones are basically at his rib cage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that's the one that. He's 6'7", 275, if I remember correctly, but super lanky, 35-inch arms, which is like top 1% of arm length among all positions. Uh, he's 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 a little bit raw, not super bendy, but how he uses his length and power, you can work with it. If it was up to me, I'd add 10 more pounds, put him at 285, play him as a 5 technique in a 3-4 because he is so damn long that you can't you can't block him. You can't get into his chest because he won't let you. And so I think that's really his value is you you bulk him up and you really just lean into uh the length and the power. Like don't worry about quickness, don't worry about bend. He's not going to have that even if he goes down to 260. Like he'll he'll be decent but he won't be yeah as quick as some other guys play the position. So lean into the traits that he does have, which is length and power and let him win with that. Like we talk about, you know, fits for, for Pittsburgh, like he fits Pittsburgh. Absolutely. as like a developmental five technique. Um, I think he fits Vic Fangio as a developmental five tech. Like really any of these defenses that like to play five, two, uh, meaning like three defensive end or three defensive, like true defensive linemen, two outside linebackers at edge, and then two inside linebackers. Um, you know, Wade Phillips does that. Fangio and all the Fangio tree does that. Uh, they do it up in Pittsburgh as well. Like any of those kind of defenses, I think Peyton Turner fits as long as they really lean into the length and the power because that's what he has. If he hits the long arm move in the shoulder, this particularly with that length, if he leans and hits the opposite shoulder and then gets the right hand pretty much anywhere. I don't care if it's your rib cage under your armpit on top of your shoulder pad. Oh, you're done. If he tur- done. if he turns you like that and pushes, you're so far away from him that he can literally walk to the quarterback. He doesn't need to sprint. You're 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 literally twisted around like this with his hand under your arm and if he hits you anywhere from elbow to mid hip, if he gets that first stab in, he's just creating this wide open door because he's so long. It's crazy. I, I meant to read this off, by the way, just because I think it's crazy, uh, and we didn't get to mention it. But with um, uh, uh, with the Seahawks releasing uh, Jaron Reed, and then him immediately going and and signing with the Chiefs, their interior defensive line rotation 
Uh-huh. It's Derek Nottie, Chris Jones, Tershawn Wharton, Colin Saunders, uh, and now Jaron Reed or Jaron Reed. I can't remember what his preferred pronunciation is. They're like, it's like a hockey line. Like they're three shifts deep on interior defense. They don't need all these guys. They just have them. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's one of the deepest interior defensive line rotations that I've seen in like the last 10 years. Like if they get injuries at the position, it literally doesn't matter. The only one that matters is, is Chris Jones. Cause he's like the X factor, but all the other guys are all starter worthy. All of them. It's you know insane. what? I can't wait to see out of that line. What? The first goal line stand in Kansas City. Oh, where Spags runs out like five of them. Five of them. And he's just like, don't, 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 don't. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. We'll we'll play, you know, we'll play the guys we have around the edge, but like you're you're not coming through the middle. It's not happening. It's gonna be so much fun. Wait a minute. It looks like his signing has been why hasn't he signed yet? I saw the thing who John Reed. Yeah, mm, I don't know. I haven't looked. There's been a lot of that this year, though. Where I saw like, a note that two he was weeks going later, to... you're like, "Oh, they're signing now." I thought they signed two weeks ago when they announced it. But there's been a lot of funky business with the lower cap uh, in terms of when people sign. You know what? I think it might be just there because he's not there yet. Like it looks like they agreed to terms, but he's not officially signed yet. I think they're trying okay. to get him in the building still. That makes sense. Because I was like, I saw it on Twitter like two days ago that he was signed. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, There's been a ton of those. I, I just saw a bunch of signings for Chicago that literally were like two and a half weeks ago in terms of releases and signings. And they're like, oh, it's all official now. And I was like, now? Like, you talked about that two weeks ago. What the heck? Yeah. So much uh, weirdness what? in a low cap year. What do you say we get out of here? Because this has been a jam-packed episode that it's got to be over two hours by now. Yeah, which... I just want to say I'm so thankful to Brandon for coming on. Uh, I love personally just selfishly talking to guys like him who are so well-connected and study so hard. I just wanted to shut up through that entire interview and listen because everything he says to me is a chance to learn and get better at a position that um, I'm still learning about for sure. Uh, offensive line. I I've had my hits and misses for sure, but I always feel like I can get a lot better there. Like I have a lot of room to improve and, and time with a guy like Brandon is just gold to me. Like everything you said, I was like, Oh, I don't look at that hard enough when I scout guards or, you know, when I'm talking about center, Oh man, I didn't, I don't lean on that enough. Or, you know, I do this and he does that. Should I look at my process? And the answer is yes. If you're talking to a guy like Brandon, um, so can't thank him enough for coming on. We've got some other really cool guests lined up, uh, pre-draft. We're going to be recording those interviews, um, uh, next week, the week after. So you'll see him roll out, uh, up to draft time, but couldn't, couldn't be more thrilled about that. What do you have coming on film room? I know you have a couple to edit. Well, I just released, uh, the Tevin Jenkins episode this morning. And then the same day that this comes out, uh, I'm releasing kind of part two in a series of like underrated players where Mm. I'm going to be professing my love for, for Cam McGrone and and Nico (laughs) Collins and obviously Mm. Jamar Johnson, who's like my favorite guy ever in this class. So uh, I'm going to be talking about some, some undervalued players, some you've heard of some you maybe haven't. Uh, and just kind of running through a list of, of guys that I, I will never have time to do a full film room on, but I still wanted to get my thoughts out there of, of 
just how much I love them. So this is a loaded class and I felt like there, there was no way I was going to get through everybody without doing no. those kind of shows. So I, I, I find it fun to do. No, which is one of the reasons I'm really glad we did this show, because even though we didn't get to talk about all those guys, we got to list out a bunch of guys that other people can go dig in on, take a look at, see where they grade them. Maybe they've heard of them. Maybe they haven't. I hope you heard of at least one person during this episode that you weren't super familiar with. Um, that's the goal. So uh, this will be dropping uh, midweek, and then we're going to do a live stream on Friday, right? uh yes yes okay, so I, we're i'm not entirely a... sure what draft related thing we're going to talk about maybe it'll just be a q a stream but i think it's probably going to be a q a stream let the let the people lead this one uh we'll do a couple hours of q a on a friday bring a beverage check it out um in the meantime if you've been oogling this very fine bootleg shirt uh we did open the bootleg store uh can't thank everybody that ordered enough uh so check out bootlegfootballpodcast.com for all the bfp merch we've had a ton of orders uh just in the first week uh including several from overseas thank you very much to our german fans and our british fans people that paid a whole bunch of shipping to get uh, a couple of pint glasses and a shirt sent over to england or germany um and everybody that's picked up their team color shirt and if you're getting that stuff go ahead and post it on social media we've already had folks post their shirts and their glasses with beer in them all kinds of fun stuff great to see that stuff out in the wild um i will have a new shirt on friday uh because i got my first promo package uh brett's is on the way so uh you'll be seeing that here but you can get all the good stuff at bootlegfootballpodcast.com uh i will be doing a bears over beers uh this week with jb um what are we talking about? We're talking about free agency and some kind of setup stuff for Chicago about how they're going to um, line up into the draft, but just a jam packed week going to be guesting on um, field goals with Brandon um, Schultz, our buddy at the end of the week. Um, and yeah, just a ton of spot. I bet you're getting a ton of radio spot stuff too. I, I got three inquiries today and I was every like, day. Ah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, um, I'm actually booked this week every day. Sorry. Uh, maybe next week, but no, can't, uh can't get enough it's draft season strike while the iron's hot we're gonna bring you all the content we can uh really appreciate you all following along with us um so much fun hope you enjoyed the episode uh put suggestions uh in the comments uh about things you want to see and we will do everything we can to to touch on that topic if it's not already in our schedule yep we'll see you guys in a couple days for that uh bootleg q a and until then see you later